This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There was a conference in Hamilton on the weekend about cannabis. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, hey, did they give out free samples? No, no, not that kind of conference. This was not the Cheech and Chong conference. This was a medical scientific conference discussing the drug, discussing the pros, the cons, the ins and outs of what we know about cannabis. Now, the reason for this obviously is because we all know, at least we think we know, that sometime this year, we think cannabis is going to be legalized in this country. Yet what becomes clear when reading about this conference is there are a lot of gaps in what we know or don't know, it seems, about the pros and cons of cannabis. And the spectator today uh, in the story about this, there was a paragraph that really caught my attention to this end. It says James McKillop, a clinical psychologist, addictions expert, and co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, said they, speaking of the doctors and those involved in this, really want to study both sides of the coin. That's a quote, both sides of the coin, looking at potential benefits and risks of cannabis. And then here's a quote. We really want to avoid the lore and myth that exists around cannabis, he said, adding they want to follow the science. Well, let me bring in Dr. James McKillop. He is the chair of the Peter Boris uh, Chair in Addictions Research. He's the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research, the co-director of, as I mentioned, the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, and a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences. He joins me now. Dr. McKillop, thanks for doing this today. Great to talk to you, Scott. Um, When I read that quote today, the one thing that comes to mind when we say we want to avoid the lore and the myth and follow the science, isn't this the kind of thing we should know before we introduce this to the broader public? Shouldn't we already kind of have some good idea about the pros and cons before it becomes a recreational drug? Well, that's the way things typically work. So usually before a specific drug, a pharmaceutical product, is provided to be prescribed by physicians for certain uh, conditions, there is a very strict process of uh, evaluating its efficacy or whether or not it works or not. And um, medical cannabis is somewhat unique to the extent that it is not like other drugs in the sense that uh, physicians authorize it, they don't prescribe it, it doesn't have a DIN number, it's not like any other kind of um, antibiotic or other pharmaceutical product you'd get from your pharmacy. And so in some ways, it is. Uh, it has not in all cases gone through the same level of vetting as other drugs. And one, one of the reasons we've created this research center is we know there has been a huge surge in interest in medical cannabis. And um, there's an enormous amount of interest online. There are a lot of people with opinions, but those opinions sometimes outpace the data. And so our research center is really trying to focus on focusing on evidence and what the evidence tells us about what it might be useful for, what it might not be useful for, and if there are possible risks. Okay. If there are benefits that we don't know about, I don't think anyone's going to complain about that then because, Hey, look that we got a benefit that we didn't even know was going to exist. I don't think anyone's going to have much of an issue, but what if we find out as this study goes along that there are negative consequences to this, that we did not anticipate, but this has already then been introduced. What then? Cause that's where I get to my point of shouldn't we know this stuff ahead of time? Sure. Well, if we find that out, 
we will certainly publicize it because our goal is not to prove something works or prove that it doesn't work so much as to try to generate the data that speaks to that. And I, I think it's actually even more important that we learn that uh, if there are adverse consequences, we need to let the public know uh, as soon as possible because, as you alluded to, as legalization takes shape, it may be that more people pursue cannabis for medical purposes, maybe not necessarily in consultation with a physician. And we think that there'll be a, a much higher need for accurate information. So if there are risks that are unknown, we really think it's critical that we identify them as soon as possible. But not to harp on this, and this is really not your responsibility per se, and I don't want to keep hammering the same point, but is this not the kind of thing generally we find out before the drug is exposed broadly to a community? We would never do this with other kinds of medicine. You're, you're absolutely right that this is a, the, the path of cannabis has been quite different from other medicines. And so, you know, that's the state of uh, where things are today. I think that uh, in some cases, the evidence is already somewhat promising. In other cases, it's much more equivocal. And so I think that we're, we're taking kind of a pragmatic perspective. Right now, um, cannabis for medical purposes is legal, and many Canadians are using it that way. And so we think there's a need for more information. You're, you're absolutely right, though, that this is an unusual situation to be in. There, there being a, you know, a drug in the marketplace that many people are using um, that hasn't always been uh, as heavily evaluated as other drugs have been. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I know this is an extremely weirdly broad question, but if someone were to say to you, tell me a couple things from the medicinal side that we absolutely know to be true about medicinal marijuana, about medicinal cannabis. What would you say to that? What are some of the things? Well, Scott, you're, you're holding me to a very high standard as a researcher to tell you <laughs> things that we absolutely know to be true. But this is what I'll tell you. Um, what we know has probably the strongest evidence, and it's not definitive, but it is probably the strongest, is that there seems to be moderate quality evidence that cannabis may be useful for managing pain. And there's also some evidence, fairly strong evidence, that it may be useful for managing spasticity or tightness and uh, uh, muscular pain in multiple sclerosis. For a lot of other conditions, it's inconsistent. Some studies show that there's evidence that it helps. Other studies show that it doesn't. Uh, and that's why it's a very murky territory. Um, and what we also know, uh, and I can say this actually fairly definitively, is that... Um, its toxicity is low. And what I mean by toxicity is, unlike, for example, opioids, which are typically used for pain relief, if you take too much, uh, you're at high risk of overdose and death. And you can overdose on cannabis, but there's no uh, risk of respiratory depression or cardiac arrest, the kind of things that can uh, lead to death, as in opioids. So certainly it can lead to uh, delirium or psychosis, and you can wind up in the emergency department. But the toxicity in terms of threat to life is much lower. So um, those are things that we can be pretty confident in. On the other side, we also know that there are some legitimate harms. So, for example, some people, not uh, even close to the majority, but a, a subsample of people can become addicted to cannabis. It's also associated with making some other mental health conditions worse, in particular schizophrenia and similar disorders. And there are increasing data suggesting that especially teenagers and young adults who use cannabis 
may be subject to uh, more cognitive uh, negative consequences. So we, we know that there are promising signals in terms of especially pain and spasticity as far as it being a medication. And we know that there are also known risks. And this conference was really all about reaching out to experts across Canada and the U.S. also to get input and to really identify where the, uh, the state of the science is and where the best where the most promising applications are. I was a little surprised, again, reading about this, that one of the comments made was there have been studies. Of course, there have been studies done, but there have not been tons and tons and tons of studies. And I guess my surprise on this came from the fact that people have been smoking this stuff for years and years. This is not a new thing, even though we're bringing it in potentially, or it sounds like uh, for legal use. This stuff has been used forever. I, I'm, I'm a little surprised by the sounds of it how little research has actually been done. It is surprising. I mean, especially because it's the most common illegally used substance, um, but it has been understudied. And the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that it's a really complicated drug to study. And that's because it's actually not one drug. It is uh, literally hundreds of compounds that are in plant cannabis. So when we talk about um, nicotine or uh, cocaine or alcohol, we're talking about a single molecule. But when we talk about cannabis, what we're actually talking about is THC, which is the compound that gets you high, so to speak, that, that is psychoactive, but also hundreds of other compounds, things like cannabidiol, which is uh, believed to have powerful anti-inflammatory properties and other positive properties, and a variety of other compounds that are believed to be potentially therapeutic. So in the past, there have been studies, but often they have uh, either zeroed in on one compound or another or have not uh, looked at the whole plant. And so that's where there's a lot of ambiguity. We're not studying just one thing. It's a plant, not a pill. So it's hard to do the kind of typical research that we would do when we were studying a new medication. Well, I also expect that probably it makes it more challenging that uh, people keep saying that the cannabis, the marijuana that people were using back in the the 60s, let's say, or the 70s, is entirely different from the cannabis, the level of, of drug that's in it from what is out there today. You're talking about two completely different things. You're exactly right. So the, the, the level of THC has gone up several folds. It's gone up from around 4% to now over 12%. And in the medical grade cannabis, it's typically closer to 19 or 20%. The other thing that's changed is now there are these new formulations that are being used recreationally, um, what are called oils and are sometimes called wax or shatter or butter and are these uh, very, very high-potency forms of cannabis that have sometimes as high as 90% THC. So now you're talking about the difference between, you know, Molson beer versus grain alcohol, 100% alcohol. <laughs> and that's, that's a very different kind of a thing. And so uh, really it's been a moving target in terms of staying abreast of what people are using and how the overall consumption marketplace has evolved. Do you think that affects some of the discussion around this? Because there are people of a certain age who used it at a certain time and don't really understand what all the fuss is about because the stuff they were using is just not comparable? I think that that, uh, that does add a dimension. I mean, I, I like to say that it's as though, you know, every beer that is being consumed is actually a, a strong glass of red wine. It's that kind of difference because it is so much stronger nowadays. So I think that because THC is a psychoactive compound that's more likely to lead to 
some of these negative consequences, for example, I think that there may be some underestimation of the risk. And the other thing that I think is a um, is contributing to uh, people underestimating risk to an extent is I think that some people are equating legalization to a public decision that there are no harms. And the reality is there are a lot of reasons to legalize, but it's not because anyone thinks that there isn't a cost-benefit profile. It's more that it will just minimize that by way of legalization. Or that it will drum up our tax dollars. But we won't get into all that politics <laughs> side of things. Uh, right. Dr. James McKillop, co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Great to talk to you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. A couple days ago, a very contentious, very controversial trial came to an end with the acquittal of a Saskatchewan farmer in the death of an Indigenous man. I'm sure you've been following this. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the details. Gerald Stanley was acquitted of killing Colton Bushy. It has been all over the place. Everybody's been talking about this. It created a firestorm of blowback from those who believe this verdict was unjust. And regardless of your view of the jury's work in this, and that's not specifically what we're going to be talking about today, because first of all, you're fully capable of making up your own mind. And second of all, I'm sure you already have made up your own mind and nothing we say in the next few minutes is going to change that. There was a second issue that arose out of this trial, out of this verdict. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was down in Los Angeles on the weekend, and when this verdict came up, he was asked about it, and he weighed in saying, and this is a quote, uh, Canada has, quote, come to this point as a country far too many times, seemingly suggesting something had gone wrong with this verdict. That, I think, is most people's interpretations. We've come to this place far too many times. Then, Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould said in a tweet that Canada, quote, can and must do better. This is the woman in charge of our justice system. Again, certainly sounding even more strongly like something went awry with this verdict, with this jury, with this court. We can and must do better. Something bad happened in that decision-making is the implication from our politicians. But the question becomes, should politicians... Again, those overseeing our system, overseeing our justice system, should they be criticizing either directly as she did or indirectly, a little less as Justin Trudeau did, verdicts? By extension, should they be casting doubt on how our justice system works and whether or not it works and making people doubt future verdicts, you would think? Michael Lacey is a partner in Browdy Thorning Zabaris Law Firm in Toronto. He's the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario. He joins me now. Michael, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Is there, in your mind, a role for politicians to have an opinion in the aftermath of a trial? Politicians can have whatever opinion they want, but the leaders of this country, the Prime Minister and the senior legal officer of the country, the Attorney General of Canada, have no business at all commenting on the correctness of the verdict. These people should be fostering confidence in the administration of criminal justice, not undermining confidence in the criminal justice uh, in criminal justice. This is not a gray zone. It's not a gray area. This is black and white. It's entirely inappropriate in the same way it was inappropriate where we all criticized President Trump for doing the same thing in the United States, commenting on judicial decisions that considered his travel 
it's shameful that they've come out with the comments they have, if, if that's what they were intending to do. I understand now there's some backtracking about what they were intending to do, but what the effect of what they said was, was to question the correctness or the justness of the verdict. It was entirely inappropriate. The implication that I, I mean, Prime Minister Trudeau's was a little softer. Hers was a little more clear that we can and must do better. That says, if we must do better, that means something wasn't done well enough. That's the, that, there's no other way to read that. Well, it's such a result-driven kind of uh, analysis, right, that, that no verdict short of a conviction of some sort would have been appropriate in this case. I mean, they were not in court. They didn't hear the evidence. They didn't hear the legal instructions that were given. They, they were not the ones who were adjudicating on it. I mean, you, you can accept that other political leaders, like the leader of the NDP, might try and grandstand and, and use this as an opportunity to talk about what he would do differently as a matter of politics, because that's what politicians do. But when you're the leader of the country, you govern. We expect you to lead by example. And, you know, if there's changes to be made, for example, in the way in which we choose juries, well, this government has had plenty of opportunity to do that, and and they've done nothing uh, in in the time they've been in power to do that. It may be uh, pie in the sky to suggest this would ever happen, but would your opinion be different if our justice minister had actually sat down and reviewed a complete transcript of the trial? As I say, this is not going to happen. But if she had gone and looked at everything that was said in court, and offered an opinion based on that, would that change things? That would not change it for me. I mean, and and I say that because at the end of the day, you know, we have jury trials in relation to second-degree murder charges. The Crown, in this case, chose to prosecute a second-degree murder charge. The default position is that there's going to be a jury trial, and we entrust 12 members of the community chosen from the pool of jurors that are available in accordance with the legal rules that apply both to the Crown and the defense, that they each get to say no up to 20 times for whatever reason they want to the potential jurors, just like the Crown did in this case, by the way, as I understand it, in saying no to potential jurors who appeared to be white farmers from the region. And if, if you're, you're not part of the jury, then you're not the one entrusted to come Uh, to a conclusion in a case. It does happen that errors are made. There are circumstances where there's errors of law that contribute to miscarriages of justice. I haven't heard anyone articulate any error in this case that led to a compromised or unjust verdict. All I've heard is complaints or criticism of the fact of the verdict, which is entirely inappropriate. All right. Just for clarity, for anyone who has a view on this verdict, you are not saying at this point, and I, just touching on what you just said, you're not saying that it's impossible that the wrong decision was reached. No, I, I, I wasn't there either, and I didn't hear all the evidence, and I don't know what the legal instructions were. I don't know if there were objections to the charge to the jury in this case. I don't know if there was evidence that was excluded that ought to have been included as part of the jury's consideration. These are all questions of law that can be dealt with quite appropriately through appellate. Uh, forums, where if the Crown is of the view that, that there was a legal error made and that legal error compromised the verdict in this case, well, then the Crown has the right to appeal. It's part of the way in which our system works. We recognize that the system isn't perfect, and we have an appellate forum that seeks to correct injustices. So I'm, I, I'm not saying that the, the verdict is necessarily the right verdict or necessarily the wrong verdict, but what I can say is it's the verdict that we entrusted upon the 12 people who decided this case, And in the absence of legal error, what we demand in these circumstances from all the justice participants is to respect that verdict and to respect that process. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Now, Michael, where I get nervous about this, where I, and you're the lawyer, but where I'm getting nervous about this, about these comments, is clearly it sounds like the only verdict that would have been acceptable is a verdict of guilty. And if that's the case, why are we bothering to have a trial? Just announce that they're guilty. Well, that, that is the concerning part here because, it, it, it's as I said, it's results-driven. That the only uh, palatable result here, it, it seems to be for the purposes of, of our Minister of Justice and and for our Prime Minister, and, and I use Minister of Justice almost mockingly in this case, because if the only palatable result was a guilty verdict of some sort, then what's the point of having a trial system at all? It, it becomes... Uh, you know, you look, you, you desire a result, and if that result doesn't happen, somehow it's a miscarriage of justice. And the second part to that is, I, I'm going to assume, I'm going to hope that you, neither you nor I ever end up in the cri- criminal dock charged with murdering someone. But if I get called as a juror now, and I get stuck hearing a case, and I vote not guilty for some reason, I'm going to be called a racist or a sexist or something if I don't follow the popular opinion, even if what I've heard and the evidence presented to me didn't convince me to convict. Yeah, juror chill. In other words, you know, you you can only come to one uh, opinion. In fact, jurors take an oath that they're going to decide a case without sympathy, without prejudice, that they're going to put race out of the picture when it comes to deciding a verdict. They're going to decide a verdict based on the law and based on the facts, and they're going to come to what's called a true verdict according to those fundamental principles of law, recognizing the presumption of innocence, recognizing the proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, you're quite right that this raises concerns about what you're saying to future jurors, um, you know, who might be called upon to decide cases um, in some other context, which is emotionally or racially charged. The good news is that we don't publicize the names of jurors as they do in other jurisdictions. We don't allow people to interview the jurors as we do in other jurisdictions. And these jurors hopefully are listening to the balanced discussion that's taking place in your show and in other shows that talk about the fact that their role and their job is to be respected, not maligned or undermined by comments from anyone. Well, and I don't believe for a second, quite frankly, that out there in that community that those jurors' names are not going to get out, that people aren't going to know who they are. I don't believe that for a second. Well, that's fair enough. That, in other words, the, the fact of, I mean, they're, they're in court every day and, and who they are is certainly known uh, by the lawyers. So that lingering effect of, of the juror chill is certainly something that should concern uh, anyone who's involved in the administration of criminal justice. And as much as you or I may not want to be in the prisoner's dock facing a criminal uh, charge of any sort, murder or otherwise, the reality is that, that things happen in our lives and we can come into conflict with the criminal justice system in ways that we don't even imagine. And you have to assess it from the perspective of the innocent accused here. And what are you saying to accused persons in terms of choosing uh, jury cases? But more problematically, what are you saying to those accused who want to choose a judge alone case in front of a superior court judge appointed by the federal minister of justice? Is this going to somehow create an environment where uh, judges will be less inclined to have a reasonable doubt if it's an emotionally charged or racially charged mm. uh, kind of case. And we see the same thing, frankly, in uh, the sexual assault context right now um, in, in terms of, of there's a perception, at least, that some judges are more reluctant to acquit, you know, even where there's reasonable doubt, because of um, public perception or, or political 
uh, commentary on the uh, correctness or uh, the truthfulness and veracity of allegations that are made when they're made in a sexual context. What's interesting here is the justice minister is in a unique position where she could actually affect change within this system if she wanted to. Now, there are those saying, no, all she's doing is scoring cheap political points by throwing this out there and throwing red meat to the folks who are angry about this. But what I haven't heard yet from anybody who's been taking that position is what's the better system? What is the better system? How do you fix this? How do you prevent this? If this was a miscarriage of justice, what do you do to fix this, to make sure this never happens again? Is there such a thing? Well, and, and Scott, you know, the, the minister should look within her own ministry and that of the other attorney generals across Canada, because historically the problem with the peremptory challenges or this, you know, this absolute right to say no to jurors uh, arose in the context of crowns exercising these challenges to get people of color off of the juries, juries when they were faced with either indigenous accused or uh, other racialized accused persons of color who were accused uh, of of crimes. And and the history of our membership, our lived experience is that uh, there was at least a perception from time to time that crowns would make a point of using their preemptory challenges not to have a racially diverse jury. So perhaps the minister should look within her own ministry. Perhaps the other attorney generals across Canada should look within their own ministries. And if they want to make changes, start making changes there. Yeah, I uh, one of the interesting things to me, uh, and look, uh, again, the, the, the verdict here is certainly people can debate that. It's not a question of whether or not it was the right verdict. It's the question of sort of trial by social media now and our government agents, our politicians and our cabinet ministers jumping in, which is the problem here, the issue here. One more thing. We used to say, it was a very common public thing to say, better 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man go to prison. It seems as though we flipped that now. It seems as though we're almost saying better 10 guilty men go to jail than one guilty man go free. Well, I I hope that's not what we've done. I mean, I I agree with you that part of our system recognizes that from time to time, guilty people will be acquitted and guilty people uh, will, in your words, go free. But that's to ensure overall we have a system of justice that we can have confidence in. The other side of it is, of course, that our system is not perfect. And, you know, we have organizations like the Innocence Project in Canada that seeks to set aside miscarriages of justice every day that arise in uh, following trials. Um, I, I hope this doesn't shake everyone's confidence in the administration of criminal justice. It's one of the best systems in the world. I'm a firm believer in the system that we do have. And, uh, you know, if there's changes to be made, systemic changes that need to be made about the way our jury pools are diversified, no doubt the Minister of Justice will get right to that rather than commenting in the media about the particular verdict in this case. Or turning it into a social media thing, which I agree with absolutely. Michael Lacey, President well, of the Criminal... They love to be liked, don't they? No, every politician does. Uh, Michael Lacey, President of the Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys hockey club, the guy who runs ComChoice Realty, does a bunch of other things around town. Once upon a time was responsible for saving the Hamilton Bulldogs in part. It's a while ago, huh? 2003. They were not bad that year either. They were saved and then they had the best team ever. The Edmonton Oilers and the Montreal Canadiens 
got convinced to make the deal work by somebody that was very convincing, apparently, that they were going to have to split their squad. And the Habs and the Oilers had never done that before because they were all about full development. They had to develop their players. What are we going to do with the other guys? And I kind of suggested it might create a winning attitude or well, because half of every, half of every team, yes, you have prospects in any minor league team, but half the team is guys who are never going to play in the NHL. They're so, plugs. So when you put the top 11 or 12 prospects from both teams in there, you're going to end up with a pretty good hockey club, and they went to the Calder Cup Finals. And the interesting thing about that year is the following year was the very first outdoor game. They don't really... The NHL doesn't really refer to it. It was the one in in Edmonton the year after where it was 10 billion below zero. I was there. I know you were. And from that Bulldogs team the year before, 19 guys, if you include coaches, were involved in that game in the NHL the next year. 19. Yeah, because it was the Habs and uh, Edmonton. Uh, that was basically as close as Hamilton has ever had since 1925 to an NHL team. I had a... I had a course, a winter glove on. I was with Cal Nichols, who was chairman of the board of the Oilers at the time, and we were partaking in some wine. Wine. And um, the guy that was pouring it, Cal just said, just just fill the glasses up. Don't worry about those little, so, which I agreed was a wonderful idea. The cup had frozen to my glove because he, the guy had spilled so much over it, and my glove and the wine glass were frozen. Oh, that's By cool. the third period, it didn't matter. No, well. I wasn't even cold then. No, I bet. I bet. Although it took four paramedics to revive you. Um, yeah, you know what? That year, that uh, that team with 19 coaches and players who went on to play in the NHL the next year, Harry Howell was a scout still at that point, the great Harry Howell. He was a scout with the New York Rangers still at that time, and I remember talking with him about that team, and I said, how would this team, as constructed right now, do in the NHL? And he says it wouldn't come last. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know what? That's um, for an AHL team, that's not bad. It, you know, what's interesting you say that, and I wasn't aware of that, but you, you would have almost thought that with that kind of success in having your top prospects both on one team, somebody might have said, why don't we try that? The issue was that there were so many guys that you probably wanted playing in the American League to see if they could take the next step would be in the East Coast. I didn't follow it, but I wouldn't be surprised that the East Coast affiliate of Edmonton and Montreal that that year had a fairly successful run as well, because there had to be eight or nine guys in the East Coast League that normally would be playing in the American League. I would think. On those teams. I would think. Uh, we're going to get back to the Bulldogs, the current version of the Bulldogs, in a minute for a couple of minutes later on in the show, because they had a very important game yesterday with a very good result, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, this is though, there really is only one sporting event going on right now. I think that, uh, that people are really, I think watching, are, are you, are you up at the crack of dawn every day now to tune in and see what's going on in the Olympics? I flip it on a quarter to six when I get up. It's, uh, it's always interesting because that's live. Yeah. I, although I, I saw your tw- uh, tweet, I'm still wanting eagerly to watch the barrel jumping. Well, yeah, we'll get to that too. But I, I've, I've, I've had a harder time this time really getting wrapped up so far in the Olympics. And I, I, someone suggested today, I was on with Scott Thompson earlier here on CHML and he made the point and he may be bang on that it just generally takes 
later. It's the second week usually when we really begin to feel the burn in a good way from the Olympics. I've just, so far I've been, Don, I've been struggling a little bit to have the same level of excitement that I usually do. And I don't know why that is. And maybe I'm completely alone on that one. Um, I, I mean, I think hockey gets the engine going because we're kind of a hockey country, but we all watch even, you know, yours truly watches figure skating at the Olympics. I don't spend any time in, in between the four years, but I'll watch it. Um, I find them all intriguing. I was fortunate enough to be in Calgary in 88. So I have a different perspective of things like the, um, ski jumping because I went and watched Eddie the... Eddie the Eagle do it. And uh, so... So you you, saw a real life uh, near-death experience up close. Yeah, he landed about halfway down the hill. (laughs) Holy crap. And they're not set up to land halfway down the hill. But uh, I was out with some some buddies uh, from Labatt, and we were walking us. We assumed it was a hockey player because all these people were milling around, and we were going for um, tea somewhere. Yeah. And or for another glass of wine. Another glass of wine. <laughs> but these guys, all these people, it was Eddie the Eagle. Like he was famous. Him and the Jamaican bobsledders, which won, I saw too, won that as well. Won that Olympics. They finished dead last, both of them, but they won that Olympics. So when I say, and and not to, who gives a damn what I've done or seen? But when you've been to the ski jumping and you've been to the bobsled track itself. You get a different perspective. But that's of it. the case with every sport always, right? If you see an NBA game from courtside. Yeah, I guess. You understand yeah. how high they're jumping and how fast they're running. If you see an NHL game from up close, you realize how fast they're skating and how quickly that puck is moving. It's always better to see but, it live. But those events you can see on TV, so you think you have perspective. But when you go to the bobsled team and somebody says, well, the Jamaicans won't be that fast. Well, when you're standing there, it's like zoom. Yeah. <laughs> It's like watching a car race. They're going like 400 miles an hour on ice in a tube. It's crazy. I've always thought that it would be probably the worst ticket in sports. No insult to Jesse Lumsden or the rest of the guys, but to be a fan standing live at a bobsleigh run, because you're standing out there in the absolute freezing cold, waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, there it went. What was it? I I blinked. Oh, poo, I blinked. I didn't see him. I'll wait for the next one. They go so fast. That you really, if you're not in the right spot, you can't really see them almost. The the cool part about being in uh, Calgary that year is it didn't get below 40 when I was there. And I'm talking Fahrenheit. It's there now. Age. No, no. I mean, in, in Korea, it's there now. They're freezing in Korea. No, but it was 40 above. It was above freezing. Everything was mud because the Chinook had come in and it stayed for the- A what? Chinook. Oh, a Chinook. Okay. <laughs> what did you think I said? I, I thought you said Chinook. <laughs> you know, the warm winds that the come warm over, winds, the, yes. over the mountains. I liked it better the other way you said it, just a <laughs> schnook. <laughs> Whatever they are. <laughs> anyway, so I think hockey will rev us up a little bit, but I think everybody will tell you that they always watch events during the Olympics that they never normally watch. Now, the girls have played, uh, the ladies have uh, have beaten the Olympic team 5 nothing yesterday. Yeah, the Olympic athletes from Russia. Yes, the the the, the, the Olympic team itself. Oh, and I think I know the answer to your trivia question, although it's it predates itself. Don't get caught cheating. Is mm. that what it stands for? I'm not yeah, sure. Well, we'll find out later. Um, yeah. Citius altius fortius yeah, means get- insert into buttock. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't actually mean that. So I, it, it, it'll get going once once we play a couple hockey games and the curling gets heated up. We're only watching 
the mix curling right now. And See, the one thing that really we sat down and we watched from start to finish was the men's uh, slope style, the bobsledding the other day. And slope style. Yeah, and it's so it's a combination of jumping and flipping and riding on rails and everything else. And I think the issue is, and I think it comes to this, it's very difficult with the time over there. If you're not up at 6 o'clock in the morning, so you're watching beforehand, and you're not up really late at night, it's really hard to see anything going on live. And if it's not live with Twitter and everything else, you already know the result. And there's, and there's very little fun in sports if you already know who won. Well, Susan and I had it on yesterday. I mean, it was a little bit on last night between something perhaps we wanted to watch. Uh, watch the Patty Hearst thing, actually. And um, you know what? When you don't care who wins and loses... Like, I wasn't curious to see how the... I wasn't on social media to see if we'd won or not. I didn't really care if it was time delayed. I would if it was a hockey game, see, I think, or yeah, something. Yeah, that's... I, see, Don, I think that's the difference, though. You just touched on it. I think that's the difference. I don't have... Right now, and again, maybe this is only me, although I've heard it from a couple other people. At this point, I don't have that burning need for Canadians to win. I want them to. I want them to win. Don't get me wrong. And I'm glad second when, right now. Yeah. And I'm glad when they have won, but maybe it's just the events that have been on so far. I haven't felt that pit of my stomach gnawing. Oh man, he or she has got to win. I haven't had that yet. So maybe, maybe when that comes and you start getting locked into that, maybe that's when it starts to happen. I do like the winter Olympics a lot better than the summer Olympics. So probably mostly because only a third of the world compete in the winter Olympics. And I, I'm guessing at my numbers as usual. But, so we're far more competitive. Oh, we are. Like, we're, we're not happy. Good. Summer summer games, you go, oh, wasn't that fabulous? It was a personal best. And she come in 27th. Right now, we can win. Like, we're ahead of the U.S. That's always a good day. It's always a good day. And and take away, again, take away slope style, I think it is, and they don't have any golds. Their two medals have both come in snowboarding, which is, uh, you know, again, fine for them. But did, it's fun to beat the U.S. no matter what. Did, did you watch 60 Minutes last night? Not yet. The, well, you're going to have to watch on a replay. I've got it. It always PVRs. Oh, really? Yeah. So they've got this Russian guy that they were drumming out of the country, and then the Russians rehired him, and he had a model on 60 Minutes of the secure area in Sochi and the non-secure area, and he, he said, now here's where the desk was, and there was a hole in the oh, yeah. wall oh, where they were exchanging. Watch the movie Invictus. That's the uh, that's the Russian scientist who was behind this whole thing. Yeah, it's... Uh, like that was on last night. I imagine his funeral's Thursday. Well, there was a whole movie out about him, and he somehow survived so far. I think he's probably wearing a wig and... Uh, and a big mustache circa Don Roberts in 1984. <laughs> but uh, you might want to watch yourself. Someone's going to think that that guy's a younger Don Robertson. Uh, you know, the thing that's really puzzled me about these, not just these Olympics, although these ones certainly, because we've got this mixed curling now. Now, I'm not a big curling guy. I'll, I don't mind saying I'm not a big curling guy. But with the Winter Olympics, because there aren't as many sports as there are for the Summer Olympics, it seems they try to gimmick it up a little bit. We've got the team figure skating now. We've got the mixed curling. Do you like the gimmicky stuff? Have you liked those things? I'm not offended by it. I don't care. I mean, why, See, don't they, why don't they have? Why, I mean, why don't they have junior categories? 
Well, I thought, you know what, if we're going to, if we're going, if we've got curling, we've got men's curling, we have women's curling, now we're going to have mixed doubles. Why shouldn't we have three-on-three hockey? Mixed hockey. Mixed, no contact hockey. Where you've got to put together a team of men and women who are going to play this thing. If you play three-on-three, there's always got to be at least one of the opposite sex on the ice. Sure. Sure. There's, there is, there are so many gimmicks you you could throw in this thing. But. When you have mixed curling, the rules don't change. It's just man, woman, man, woman. So you play women's rules for hockey, but you allow men to play that one for this three-on-three thing, or four-on-four. Yeah, but three-on-three changes the concept of the game. I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, but mixed mixed curling is two instead of four people per team. You're throwing your rock, and then you're running down and trying to sweep for yourself. It changes how you do things. I'm, I'm looking at this just thinking... I, I haven't watched it closely enough. Is there not four in a team? No, it's two of them. One of each? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just... I, I'm all for... If you're, gonna, if you're going to add different sports to add gimmicks and add wrinkles and stuff, let's, let's go all in. Let, seriously, let's go well, all in on this stuff. You, as have many other people, have argued before that every four years, instead of having a world junior hockey championship, we should send the kids to the Olympics. Yeah. Why not? It's been, uh, look, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to be optimistic about this men's hockey team, but I have no interest in how they do. If they win, what does that mean? I think they're going to win gold. Okay. And if they do, what does that mean? And if they lose, what does that mean? It means they're the best, best in the world. Oh, does it? <laughs> At the Olympics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In South Korea. That that the Toronto Maple Leafs and not even them, the Ottawa Senators and Montreal Canadiens and Vancouver Canucks, three terrible teams, could take their bottom two lines and send them to the Olympics and win gold. There's, I don't know. I'm finding it hard to be excited about the men's hockey, the women's hockey. I'm actually very excited for, and I thought it hasn't changed, right? And you know many of these Canadian players now by name. You know who they yep. are. I'm excited because we have three local women who are on this team, yep. which I think is terrific. But I am far more excited to watch women's hockey this time than men's hockey. And at the risk of sounding completely sexist, that was not the case the last two times or three times because of the NHL players in this thing. It had nothing to do with male versus female. It had to do with NHL players and best on best in the world. So Fortino Nurse... Indulge me. And Renata Fast. Is she from Hamilton? She's from Burlington. Okay. So you've got two from Hamilton. Two from Hamilton. Sarah Nurse and, and Laura Fortino. I would wager a bet that if they win a gold medal, we've never had two gold medal medal Olympic Olympians of any male or female from the city of Hamilton before. We should be excited. I would think you're correct. And well, we know we've never had more than one woman on the national team at a time until now for an Olympics. We've we've had one. We had Becky Keller, who was from Hagersville, but yeah. eventually came to Hamilton, then Burlington. Yeah, and we had uh, we've had other players before and since, but there's never been more than one. Well, now we've got three. We've got three members of the bobsleigh team. Who it is very depending on who who he gets put with. It is very possible Jesse Lumsden could win a medal this time, which would be terrific. I, I'm I'm cheering for Jesse to win. Are they not on a team when they go? What do you mean? They pick the teams over there? They can mix and match for the two-man and decide who's going to push with who, who's pushing best and who's driving best, and they don't know necessarily who they're going with. Really? Yeah. So you, so he could be with Justin Cripps, who's the top driver in the world, 
which he should be because Jesse's one of the top two or three best push guys in the world. We could probably push the building we're in. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Know, not real fast, but he could push it. But I'm. It's icy today, though. You know, I, I, I go back to my point, though, is that as, at the risk of sounding incredibly silly, because people go, why would you have three on three hockey? Why would you have four? If Michael Phelps can go to the Olympics and compete in eight different events, and while they are different strokes, they're within the same. Kettle of fish? Yes. And at the end of it, he has eight medals that are added to the America's total because he wins a medal in every one of these things. We send a team of 23 people over there and we win one medal. We don't even get to count all them as 23 medals. So let's at least expand our areas that we're good at and say, we're going to make three different hockey medals. Well, there's three we can win. And you've got three on three men, three on three women, men, women, there's... If we're going to be if we're going to be doing this, if the Olympics are going to be adding sports like mixed curling and other things to try and well, if it's about us winning more medals, we're already going to win one in mixed curling. Uh, we we're are in the finals. Yes, we've won a medal already. So It'll we be, could so we could lose gold, and they can come home with the silver. See, you're not allowed to say that, Don. That is That's so that is so non-modern and politically correct that you would lose gold. Don, you win silver. I don't give a rat <laughs> patoonie how, what politically correct is. Have you ever met me? I'm, I'm being so facetious, they, so but they yes. Can lose, so they're, so they're going to lose gold and get silver at the worst. Some people will argue, no, they've won silver. Yeah, but they're not here. They're just you and I. I, I You're I, trying to be politically correct. I, no, I'm trying to be ridiculous because I actually find it a hilarious argument. That if is. you play a game and you lose that game, I'm not arguing that silver is shameful by any stretch. Silver is a great medal to win. Silver, you've done very, very well, but you cannot argue you've won silver. You've claimed silver. You've earned silver. You've taken silver. I think when you get to the finals, you can both say we've both won silver. One of us are getting the gold. All right. It's a more positive way to look at it. It's more positive. Yes. I, I, I have a hard time with the always upbeat, up with people kind of routine that even if you lose, you win. Well, you want to go there. Then you, you're going to tell me that anybody, whether it's curling or not, any other sport, you get into the final and you don't win the final. Are you saying, yay, I won silver. Yeah. No, none of these athletes are saying that. They are all hyper competitive athletes who will be happy in time with silver, but want gold, desperately want gold. You're going to, you can't tell me that the two Canadians who are competing in the mixed curling final are sitting there saying, well, who cares? We'll get silver at worst. They're not saying that at all. They are focused 100% on winning gold. 20 years from now when they're sitting around having a glass of wine, they're going to say, do you know what? <laughs> at the outdoor game, at spilled outdoor all over game, themselves. You know, yeah. the, uh, we won the first silver medal ever awarded in mixed curling. And the guy <laughs> beside him is going to say, they used to have mixed curling in the Olympics? Yeah. Was that around the same time they used to have live pigeon shooting, <laughs> which was an actual Olympic event once upon a time, believe it or not. Well, they do run into pigeons. They just would release a pigeon, and instead of having <laughs> clay things that you would shoot at, you would shoot at the live birds. They could do that at Gore Park. I guess, I, well, I guess it was a bloody mess, so they finally, you know, could you imagine? I mean, that was back in about 19... 19- 40 something. With sensibilities the way they are today, if you had a live pigeon shooting (laughs) 
where they just are releasing birds into the sky and people from different countries are blowing them out of the sky. That would, PETA would have an aneurysm. Do you imagine? Release the dogs. We have a new competition. No, no, no. Oh, nobody's shooting dogs. <laughs> no, but I just, I, I'm, I look at some of these and again, we talk about these gimmicky sports. Tug of war was an Olympic sport once upon a time. Uh, underwater swimming. Who could swim the furthest underwater was a, was an Olympic sport. Not a winter sport. That would be really cold. Now, swim the furthest or stand to the longest? No, swim the furthest without coming up for air. See, that's another one Phelps could win. Well, a lot of these guys could. A lot of these guys could. You just you take, a, feet, that t- uh, take a big breath and away you go. And uh, But no, there's been a bunch of, um, of, again, I sort of call them gimmicky sports over the years. Uh, car racing used to be an Olympic sport once upon a time. They had a car racing event. But I'm sure we'll find something else. I mean, what other winter sport? Broomball. We need to bring broomball back. Maybe ringette. We could be good at those two. Polar polar bear swimming. I'm going to be surprised that there hasn't been ringette in it. Well, it, it, had there not been women's hockey, we probably would have ringette because they would be looking to add more women's sports. Women's sports. And, but we don't need ringette because we have women's hockey. Are there, there. Is it equal now? I don't you know. being the sports columnist. I don't know if are. it's exactly equal. And the only reason is because there are a couple sports like ski jumping, for example, they don't have women's ski jumping. Anyway. Could women be in it? In ski jumping? I'm, well, they. You have to the, qualify now. Thanks yeah, to, they're not allowed to. to Eddie. Com- I don't believe they're allowed to compete, but there are some that are lobbying for this. There is a lobby group to try and get women ski jumping into the Olympics. And I, I, quite I would frankly, think if you can jump far enough, who cares? I, I don't, yeah, I don't see a reason why you shouldn't have it. We're way past the point of Eddie the Eagle Edwards. We are. And, and while that was charming and while that was cute and all, all the rest, we're way past that point. There's no country that is going to be sending a woman to the Olympics who is going to be that. That's not what the Olympics are anymore. Whether it's for better or for worse, that's not what the Olympics are anymore. If you were to have women ski jumping, the women would be fully capable of ski jumping. They're not going to be going off there like that guy at the beginning of Wide World of Sports. <laughs> have, do you, have you? I did something last night I don't normally do. There's a wonderful commercial of um, kids being born without feet and so on and skiing and doing all the, 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 the and being handicapped and, and, and competing in sports. And, you know, like the, the Olympics are full of wonderful stories, but this commercial, like, I think I'm going to pay attention to who did this because oftentimes you'll say, did you see that commercial? Yeah, what was it for? Because you can't remember the name of the company, but the commercial was fabulous. It's Toyota. And it's all around sports mm. and kids overcoming obstacles and becoming successful. Boy, it's a touching commercial. I have seen it. The other commercial, as we go to break, the other commercial, uh, I, there is an Olympic athlete. I won't mention a name because uh, I don't know if it's embarrassing to them. I'm not trying to be embarrassing. But when we get our pool opened, there is a company that has hired some Olympic athletes to do pool openings in the off season. Winter Olympians. And a few years ago, I had like half of the, one of the Olympic, Winter Olympic teams in my backyard opening my pool thinking, you know, on the one hand, this is really cool. And there's a commercial about one of these athletes now that's on during these Olympics. And on the other hand, how badly do we pay our Olympians that they got to come and open my pool for me in the summertime, in the spring? Well, the question I have for you is, 
did your wife say, fellas, take all the time you need back there at the pool? <laughs> they were not, yeah, they were not oiled up like the guy from Tonga. Otherwise, she would have. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. little clarification, thanks to a caller. This one flew right under both of our radars. There is women's ski jumping now. I knew they had been lobbying for this. I remember hearing about the lobbying for this. I don't, I didn't remember them winning that. So good for them. And there is women's ski jumping now at the Olympics. And so there you go. I, that one was just whoop, right past, but there you well, go. Don't, don't lump me in. I, I'm wrong. You, I'm wrong often enough. I said, you're the sports columnist. You would know if there's more winter women event or men's events and women's events. And, uh, Let's pretend that what we were talking about was a number of years ago, <laughs> and I would have been correct. <laughs> if this had been back about four years ago or more, uh, I would have been correct. Hey, that's, you know I what? get to play that card. You're too young. That's, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, it's not forgetfulness. I somehow completely missed that. Anyway, there you go. Good. I, I mean, I'm glad that, that Boy, it is there. we're going to start calling in when we're wrong, mm. you're going to need somebody else answering the phones in there. <laughs> Now they don't yet. Well, have, I'm wrong, they sir. don't yet have barrel jumping, which I would like yes. to see brought back. That was in Y World Sports, right? And it was, it was, it always seemed like it was a bunch of French guys, French Canadian guys, wearing overalls and a really bad Jaffa helmet, <laughs> and they would take a big run and then leap and crash into the barrels. And it seemed like it took longer to reset the barrels than it did to do anything else because they'd be like just. I assume people remember what we're talking about. At least some people do. Yeah. It would be just, imagine Evil Knievel, instead of he, him jumping what, school buses, he was jumping on his feet, jumping barrels. They would do the big lap around the ice and then try and jump. And and you know why it was so hard to do, Don? This is, the reason why barrel jumping was so difficult is because in order to jump, you need to use your Foot, your foot has to spring and you need your Achilles tendon and your calf muscle to push you. You need, if you want, you know, that's where you get your jump from is your calf. Skates, your feet are locked into position. You can't do that. So it's all coming from your thighs, but you don't get good height. You never get good height when you're jumping in skates. And so guys would just take these huge runs and then just bam, and the barrels were go. And I always thought it'd be way more interesting if they filled those barrels with kerosene or something. <laughs> Lit them on fire. Now let's see you jump these. Let's turn this into a real event. Put a flare in the guy's back pocket. Yeah, there you go. Now let's see how you do. You do but it I, at night then. No, I, I, I would like to see if we're going to bring back, or if we're going to bring in some real fun sports, let's bring in barrel jumping. Let's start with barrel jumping. That sounds like playing hockey without jocks and helmets. Uh, go. There are not, sadly, enough YouTube videos of barrel jumping. They are rare and hard to find, but they're out there. So you can go and watch some barrel jumping. And they're in black and white, I'm they're, Well, yeah, so is their backside. Yeah. It was black and blue, most of them, because it was always, there was always, no, and even if they cleared the barrels, almost nobody ever landed on their skates. They just slapped down right on their cheeks. It would be the most painful thing to do, but boy, it was a lot of fun. Um, I did want to mention the Hamilton Bulldogs quickly, because uh, on the weekend, they played the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, which were the runaway number one team in Canada. In every ranking, probably since about the third week of the season, they've been ranked number one. I think they've lost seven games all season. 
And the Bulldogs pretty much handed their butts to them. Blew them out. They blew them out. It was 5-2 was the final, but it was 5-1 at one point, and they were completely dominating. And I, you know, do you, does this give the Bulldogs any kind of kick in the community for people to suddenly say, okay, maybe now it's time to go and check this team out, or does it do nothing? It should. I mean, what they've done and what they've been doing should be a boost. I mean, it's unbelievable that we can have an OHL team that good and not outdrawing teams that are far less successful and far less entertaining. Um, You know, Kitchener and and London always have good teams, but they always draw 10,000 people. I mean... But, you know, I don't think you can... Right now, I don't think you can compare yourself with them because of their long-standing tradition in their community. But I, I'm looking no, more we're, we're, places we're one like of the Niagara top teams. Yeah, look at somewhere like Niagara or Guelph that are getting five, which I think is a reasonable number. Yes, and you're not getting that here. But you, but I'm wondering if this game maybe does that. If this game maybe is the eye opener that says we were waiting to see if they were really any good, and they played the best team in the country and. Not the best team in the country by yours or my assessment, by everybody's assessment. Yeah. And they killed them. Now, they play them again on Friday in Sault Ste. Marie. We'll see how that one goes. But nonetheless, they uh, to me, what this game showed is if the Bulldogs are interested in playing, because this is a challenge for them, they often play to the level of their competition. But if they are interested in playing and they get into a playoff series... They can beat anybody. This team could win the OHL championship this year and go to the Memorial Cup. That would not be crazy. Barry beat them 5-1 the day before. And they were awful. And that is what you get with junior hockey. And if you're Bulldog management, Steve Steos, who's built a wonderful hockey team for us here in Hamilton, it's when you've done what he's done and then you see Barry beat you 5-1, you go, holy crap. And then the next day when the best team in Canada comes in and you hand it to him, that makes you feel a lot better. And it does a couple things for the Hamilton Bulldogs. And you're right, it should do something to the community. You should go out and watch these guys play because it's an opportunity to, to witness a fabulous OHL franchise. The other thing it does for the players is, and the coaching staff and, and uh, Steos is, See, boys, when you're focused and you work hard, we can beat anybody. And that's what they should take away from this weekend. We are going to have the odd off day, but on our best day, we can beat anybody. And that will really help them moving along into the, into the playoffs. And as they move along, they will now know they can beat the best team in Canada. It will be very important, although not critical, that they do well this Friday. Yeah, yeah. And if what they do un- well, if they win Friday, then you maybe got to knock them down a notch because yeah, they're well, cocky. Yeah, it doesn't do them any good if they go into Sault Ste. Marie and lose 7 nothing. No. But if they go, and even if they lose, if they're really competitive, I think you can walk away and say, you know what? Well, they lose 3-2 in overtime or they win again. You, yeah, you Then can you s- go, boys, now see, we've got to be focused. The problem is, from a coaching standpoint, and more importantly with kids, you don't know what you're getting each and every day. And building that consistency is what's ever so important prior to the playoffs coming. And you've got to play without a couple of your good players and still win. And you got to 
believe you can win. And if they do well Friday night, they'll now know they can beat anybody in the country. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.